Hello, I'm Ben Horton, and you're probably wondering why you have a new episode of Undercurrents in your feed so soon after the previous one. That's because this week we're launching a new mini-series, Career at the Crossroads. Over the course of five episodes, all published this week, John Nilsson Wright, the Career Foundation Fellow in the Asia-Pacific Programme at Chatham House, will explore the strategic relations of Korea with an all-star lineup of guests, asking how the country is seeking to protect its interests in an increasingly contested Pacific region. In this, the first episode, John is joined by Jennifer Lind, a professor of government at Dartmouth College in the United States and an associate fellow in the US and Americas program at Chatham House. You'll hear them discuss the key themes for the rest of the series, in particular the strategic challenges facing Korean policymakers today. I hope you enjoy listening. Well, welcome everybody. My name's John Nelson Wright. I'm the Career Fellow at Chatham House, and I have the privilege of working on a five-year project supported both by the Career Foundation and Yoshide Future Consensus Institute, a think tank based in Seoul. I'm here today, and I'm really fortunate to have the chance to chat with Professor Jennifer Lind, who, as I'm sure many of you know, is a professor of international relations at Dartmouth College in the United States, who works extensively on Korea and Japan-related issues. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, John. It's really exciting to be part of this conversation. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So we were thinking about how best to frame this, and it seems to us that you know, Korea is really at something of a turning point, both in terms of the kind of challenges it faces in the region, the rising China, the perennial challenge of North Korea, but also at a time when the new administration in the United States under Joe Biden is thinking about how best to think about these alliances and what sort of role America should play in the world. And of course, in East Asia, a really important region economically and a part of the world which faces these big existential challenges. So we thought maybe a career at the crossroads would be a good way of framing this discussion we're going to have an opportunity, Jennifer and I, to talk about some of the big issues. And then over the next few days, we're going to be talking to a number of prominent individuals from the region, from Korea, from Japan, also from Europe, to get a perspective on some of these big crossroad-style challenges that Korea is facing. So I thought I might start, Jennifer, by sort of asking you to give us maybe a sense. I mean, what do you think are the big issues at the moment? Seen from your point of view, sitting in the United States, with the new Biden administration, what's what's going on? I think it really is a very profoundly interesting time to be evaluating Korea's future. I think, as you say, the crossroads metaphor is quite apt. There's a lot of turning points that Korea is confronting right now. There's demographic turning points. There's domestic political turning points. And, and certainly in its strategic environment, in relations with North Korea, in relations with China, and the US-Korea alliance, there's tremendous, tremendous change. I guess when I look at some of the big issues that Korea is confronting, one of them is reevaluating the US-Korea alliance after a fairly tempestuous four years that the United States has endured as has its allies. 
So where are we with the U.S. ROK alliance? How well did it weather the wild ride of the last four years? And, and how healthy is that relationship? I think that's one really important question. Another big question is China. The military balance due to China's big military buildup and increased assertiveness in East Asia the military balance is, is changing significantly, and, and there's a lot of concern about the stability of territorial disputes, the situation of Taiwan, and so on. And so where is Korea in all this? What is South Korea's role vis-a-vis -vis the rise of China and the growing security competition with the U.S. and China? And then finally, relatedly, there's the question of Japan. Obviously, Japan and South Korea have, have so much in common, so many shared interests, and both share these alliances with the US. But, but then again, we see them as countries that are at this moment in a, a really low point in their political relations. So I think that's something we really need to explore. And again, in the context of evaluating these wider threats and challenges going on in the region. And I think it's really interesting, isn't it, to think about how countries, when you, when you talk about you know, the relationship between Korea and Japan, history, as you've often written about in your work, has been a big stumbling block. Because after all, these are two countries, they're both liberal democratic regimes, they both have decades of experience as key allies. Korea described also often as a linchpin for US foreign policy in the region. Japan, the cornerstone of America's East Asian regional security and diplomatic strategy. And yet history has so often been a source of division between Korea and Japan, and some might say is actually becoming more of a division these days, with big debates over the status of so-called comfort women, legacies from the colonial period getting in the way of bilateral cooperation. And in the past, we've often seen the United States stepping in to try and act as an honest broker, to try and bring its two allies closer together. Yet one of the things that struck me about the new administration in Washington is that it seems to be at its own kind of crossroads. We see the President and Secretary of State Blinken talking about the importance of this so-called inflection point, this new turning point in global affairs, with the United States having to redefine its role as an international actor, especially in the wake of all of that time under Donald Trump when we saw a more, if not isolationist, certainly more unilateral approach to foreign policy. But along with that idea of change, it's also been really striking how People like the new Secretary of State at his recent speech, for example, at NATO headquarters in Brussels, talked about President Eisenhower. So there seems to be a desire to reach back to past American diplomatic practice. It seems to me, therefore, that the Americans are trying both to, to grapple with the challenges of the present, but also find good examples from the past that can serve them well in trying to build the type of alliance relationships that they want, that are both going to address America's national interests and also address these very big global considerations and global challenges, whether it's China or North Korea in the case of, of the region. And I suppose one of the things that's interesting is to say whether can that historical frame of reference be enough to build real common interests with South Korea and with Japan? From the vantage point of Seoul and Tokyo, do those key allies see the relationship in the same way that the American rhetoric from the new administration would suggest is going to be at the forefront of what Biden and Blinken and others are going to be doing. The United States has long desired a, a sort of a trilateral scenario in its relationships with Japan and South Korea and has been 
very frustrated at different points in time when that didn't seem to materialize, when South Korea and Japan were really at each other's throats on, on a variety of issues. Usually the, the history issue is a very common one, as you mentioned. And yeah, historically, you can you can point to moments where the, the U.S. tried to help broker an agreement, an apology, some sort of settlement and so on to encourage a more productive relationship between Seoul and Tokyo. I spoke to a lot of American diplomats over the past few years who were quite frustrated at the lack of energy coming from the Trump State Department, the lack of attention on these sorts of issues. And so we certainly can point to probably a much less interested uh, Trump administration on managing these issues. But that brings us to the question of the Biden White House, what will we see? For, for me, I, I observe the president assembling a, a foreign policy team that's just truly stunning in its talent and experience. If anyone can, can help make progress on, the, on this issue, these people can, and I know they want to. But then the question is, is, is how much of a role can the U.S. play? Again, this is something the U.S. has wanted to make progress on for a very long time and has continually seen bilateral relations between Japan and South Korea frequently descend into tension on this issue. Mm. So I, that brings us to the question of one school of thought that says, you know, this is just all South Korean domestic politics. This is about if you have someone from the left in the Blue House or someone from the conservative side in the Blue House, given their various foreign policy priorities, that translates to different policies on the, the history issues. So that's one argument. Another argument is that, and that this is frequently the one that I think you would hear from South Korea, is really emphasizing Japan's role and Japan's poor handling of its history issues and particularly with respect to South Korea. And I'm sure it's it's easy to point to, well, maybe it's all domestic politics, maybe it's all Japan. And I'm sure we all know that there's the answer is somewhere in between that there that each of these factors plays a role. So that's something that'll be really interesting to discuss with our guests. And on that issue of politics, right? I mean, we've seen so much change, right? Maybe the pace of change is accelerating. Now, it was just a year or so ago, we had those dramatic National Assembly elections in South Korea, huge success for the governing Democratic Party. And now we're talking at a time where we've had already two big mayoral elections in Seoul and Busan, which seem to suggest that the governing Democratic Party is on the back foot. The Conservatives are, if not in the ascendancy, but certainly in a position to challenge the Blue House on such a range of issues. So it's becoming a very volatile political environment. And maybe the politics is going to be so fractious that any hope that there will be space for sensible, considered foreign policy is going to go out the window. You know, are we going to see, in a sense, diplomacy becoming a victim of domestic politics and then back to the United States, I think you're absolutely right. This is the A team of all A teams to see these people who are so experienced, Jake Sullivan, Blinken and others who have worked with both Korea and Japan, who know both countries. And who, of course, in those historic two plus two meetings we saw not so long ago in Seoul and Tokyo, were very careful to emphasize the importance of listening to their partners. Maybe this reflects this kind of shift in relative power, because if we think about the past, when we talked about US alliances in the Cold War, it was familiar to talk about capabilities and intentions. 
And the intentions now seem to be very much an echo of what we saw at a, at a similar pivotal moment. When Dean Epson wrote about being present at the creation, he used language that in a sense has been echoed by Blinken and others when they talk about this inflection point. But the big difference, as I see it, is that the capacity, the capabilities of the United States are now arguably much more reduced. Is it within America's brief to bring Korea and Japan closer together? Do these three countries even see the world in terms of security challenges in the same way? But South Korea, of course, it has a long history of its own strategic partnership with China, which seems to transcend domestic politics. We've had conservatives like former President Park Geun-hye and others who talk about the importance of that strategic relationship, even if they're not ideologically on the same page as Beijing. And that's a function of geography. It's a function of economic interdependence. It's a function of diplomatic reality, given China's critical role in managing the challenge of North Korea. So it's very interesting to see to what extent policymakers in Seoul see the big challenges that the United States is mapping out at the moment, the challenge of China and the challenge of North Korea as part of its reassessment of policy towards North Korea, to what extent Korea sees the world in the same way. And meanwhile, in Japan, we've had a transition from Prime Minister Abe to Prime Minister Suga. Prime Minister Abe, of course, such a key player in setting out first his Indo-Pacific strategy, subsequently transformed into a vision now, perhaps less ambitiously, more of a concept. Even the notion of the Indo-Pacific means different things to different actors. So to me, the environment seems very fluid and there is what international relations specialists so often talk about, the danger of misperception, even amongst friends, that the definition of these key concepts, stability, strategic threats, all of these are kind of up for debate and discussion. So it'll be very interesting, I think, when we talk to our guests to get a sense from them whether they're all on the same page. And we haven't even begun to talk about Europe. Here I am talking to you from Britain, a country that is struggling to define its role in the world, has just published its own new intergovernmental reassessment, starting to talk much more ambitiously about having a role in East Asia. Very exciting time. So a lot of these issues, I think, are going to be very interesting to see played out in our discussion. I'm really glad to come back to the topic of Europe because I was actually thinking about that as we were discussing the history issues. Europe, Western Europe in particular, is an area where we've seen countries overcome tremendous historical grievance and historical trauma. Again, overcome them in favor of repairing their relations because they had a shared sense of threat perception, shared set of interests and felt that they needed to overcome these issues. And so I, I think Europe has so much to offer. European countries such as, as Germany and France, Britain itself and its relations with West Germany and then later unified Germany represent a tremendous historical reconciliation after immense national trauma. And so on these historical issues, I was thinking while we were talking, yes, the, the U.S. absolutely has a role to play and, and has played a role, but European countries are really the masters at this. <laughs> it's the French and the Germans engaged in really one of the, the most historic, profound reconciliations that we've seen in international politics. And so I know that Europe has a lot to offer on that front. And the European example, I think, reminds me of one of the other issues that we want to push our guests to engage with, although this is, will always be, I think, a challenging issue when you're asking people to comment on current leaders, is leadership, right? Do the people at the top 
you think of all of those European leaders who were so instrumental in the Cold War in transcending old historical rivalries. Is there enough appetite on the part of leaders to really look beyond these historical grievances? And how many of the roadblocks, to continue our metaphor, to cooperation and active dialogue are a result of things that are happening at the grassroots level? In the last few weeks, we've been hearing reports from North Korea of how Kim Jong-un is talking about the importance of a more sort of grassroots-based set of policies in North Korea. We don't typically look at North Korea and think about bottom-up decision-making, but popular sentiment, popular attitudes seem to have become much more part of the process of thinking about policy. It was Jake Sullivan who a few years ago talked about the importance of devising a foreign policy that represents the interests of middle-class Americans so that people, in a very fundamental way, feel engaged in foreign policy. If there's not been enough engagement on the part of Americans in global affairs, or if that's part of the diagnosis of the problem, has there been too much popular engagement in politics, whether in South Korea or in Japan, that is getting in the way of the ability of leaders to actually think rationally and coherently about policy? Is policy becoming too driven by emotion, sentiment, and not enough based on careful calculation of threats and opportunities? Well, it it might come back to just the fact that we are at such a point of flux right now, or back, back to your crossroads analogy, right? We had a certain balance of power, a certain strategic environment in East Asia and in the world after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. So that that ended this Cold War era. And then we entered into what we called at the time the post-Cold War era and didn't really know what to call it. And I think a lot of people have started, at least the international relations scholars I hang out with refer to it as primacy or primacy, as as I suppose we would say at Chatham House. Mm -hmm. And that was a time when the United States was the the dominant economic power, the major voice in global trade, global finance, the unparalleled military power, certainly in East Asia, and projecting power all over the world. And as you were mentioning just a bit ago, this is changing. The U.S. relative power is diminished given the rise in power that we've seen with China, both in the economic sense and military sense. And then beyond that, China is a multidimensional power that is not merely like the Soviet Union was, striving to build up this massive military and largely confining its actions to politics and military affairs, China is across the board a player in technological realms, in the setting of standards, in global governance, development, finance. I mean, it's every single issue that countries could potentially lead on, China is is seeking to lead. So that's a tremendous difference relative to the the Cold War era when we faced a, a certain type of threat. Now, as I said, the balance of power is really shifting. And I think we are still very much, when I say we, I I guess I'm referring to American kind of foreign policy thinkers. I think we very much have this primacy mindset where we're being very slow to shed the state of mind we've had for the past 30 years in which the United States was this unparalleled, unrivaled power. Mm. 
I think that's one thing that we're all feeling our way toward at this moment. And American allies are feeling their way toward it as well. So it's not just the United States, it's the countries who have relied upon the United States. China seems to have digested it pretty quickly. <laughs> At the Anchorage Summit, basically informing the United States, you know, hey, you're not the only big kid on the block anymore. So China seems to have a very clear vision of, of its own power. Whether or not that is actually merited by the balance of power is another question. But again, I think it's something that both the United States as well as U.S. allies are just trying to come to grips with at the moment by evaluating what are the, for example, the alliance commitments that the United States has made to its allies in Asia by hearing from a lot of military analysts you know, gosh, you can't sail your aircraft carriers through those straits anymore. If you do, you might lose those aircraft carriers, uh, as well as talking about moving surface vessels into the region, other kinds of surface vessels, short-range aircraft that the U.S. would move into the region at a time of, of war. So there are all these issues right now in terms of asking fundamental questions about what today, given the massive Chinese military buildup that we've seen, what can the U.S. do to uphold its alliance commitments? And so the U.S. is trying to figure this out. And obviously, American allies are quite interested in the answer, because if the U.S. can't do the sorts of things it's been promising to do in the event of war, in the event that it needs to come to their defense, then that's obviously going to require some very serious foreign policy conversations in those countries. It's really good to remind ourselves as how much has changed since the Cold War. As you rightly point out, an adversary that is now very different from the then Soviet Union in terms of its ability to be across so many different critical issue areas, and where there are still, as Anchorage demonstrated, kind of important areas, even for cooperation, climate change, dealing with so many of those big global issues. And it's been striking how, in the midst of all of the rhetoric about growing tensions in the security space, there is still a recognition, it seems to me, on the part of all of the countries we're talking about, the United States, Korea, Japan, that China is still a potential partner. But the challenge, of course, is working with a country that also seems to be part of the problem in terms of its willingness to provoke you know, the sense of regional issues such as Taiwan, which has been so frequently in the news over the last few weeks, the anxiety about the reliability of America's extended deterrence, something which I think policymakers both in Tokyo and Seoul feel palpably, perhaps they don't say it as much as they might do in public if they were Americans, for example, or if they were European actors. And that raises interesting questions about both diplomatic culture, the way in which these discussions take place, because if you're moving to a new model, genuine inclusivity and shared cooperation, you also need to find a framework in which people can talk very frankly about what their priorities are. And one of the things that was very striking, certainly one thing I noticed in looking at many of these Cold War relationships is how often you would find regional actors, sometimes leaders in countries like Japan, saying one thing to their American partners and something very different to their domestic electorates. And that, I'm sure, needs to change. And it will be very interesting to see how much of an appetite there is to have that frank exchange of views. Linked to that, of course, are questions about trust. Donald Trump's Disruptive influence, if I can put it in those terms, has meant that I think a lot of trust has disappeared, or at least a lot of that sense of reliability that has been the bedrock of these alliance relationships has been 
opened up to new interpretation, all of the discussion about burden sharing. And so it's going to be very interesting to test the mood in both Seoul and Tokyo and get a sense of what local experienced diplomats think about the current relationships and how much trust there is. And if where there are signs of a diminution in trust, whether between Korea and the United States and Japan and the United States, or perhaps most powerfully of all, across the EC, across the Sea of Japan, between these two key American allies, how can that trust and genuine cooperation be rebuilt? Um, some people have said culture is a key factor, a key solvent to many of these disputes in building or reducing tensions. But it brings us back again, of course, to the Europeans and your, your important point, Jennifer, about the example of reconciliation that we saw in the aftermath of the Second World War, whether similar exercises, similar initiatives can be carried out, and how you create at a very fundamental practical level, the means for creating that sense of trust. Is it people-to-people diplomacy? Is it going beyond dialogues between historians to talk about contentious issues, to find ways to bring teachers, educators together? Europe has, of course, had a huge success through initiatives such as the Erasmus programme in allowing students to move between their different countries. European identity has been based not only on a common threat, as it was in the Cold War, the Soviet Union, but also by a need to overcome those historical tensions. And of course, when we look at Asia, we see this proliferation of institutions. Rather than one distinct structure, we see multiple, sometimes overlapping, sometimes competing institutional structures, both in the geoeconomic and the geopolitical and the security space. So how can we create a sense of order, to use a buzzword at the moment, in a region where there seems to be a lot of competing architectures, competing models and competing structures, and particularly at a time when there is so much distrust about the intentions of the different actors. So we have clearly an enormous range of material to cover, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to having the chance with Jennifer to talk about our first issue, which is the question of Japan and Korea, and some of those difficult, if not intractable, bilateral questions. Thanks very much for listening to this bonus episode of Undercurrents. There are four more episodes coming up in this series, and then we'll be back with our regular programming very soon. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with the work of Chatham House on our website, www.chathamhouse.org, or follow us on Twitter, at Chatham House. Till next time, thanks for joining us. <laughs>